I think we've all been affected by what's going on around us either directly or indirectly by this virus and how it's affected different people in different communities. And I think as the world faces a lot of fear and even insecurity, we see it across the board, there's not a better place to be together with God's people. And I just thank God that they had that uh, sentence in their banning of 50 people or more to gather except for churches. So, you know, uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. It makes it a lot easier to preach to some people than an empty uh, building. However, I've done that in the past <laughs> as well, so it's okay. But we want to reflect on God's character. We want to reflect on God's sovereignty, his providence for us, uh, really on the goodness of God that we know to be true because we know him in a personal way. I think this, this virus and the situation that it's caused is, is serious. We should all practice, like I said, the best of personal hygiene and health practices as we weather through this storm. But make no doubt about it, this is a storm. It shall end. It will come to pass. I uh, remember when we used to visit our family in Florida. Occasionally, while we were there, they would have warnings of foul weather coming in. It would uh, make major changes to the way things went on as the storm approached. And inevitably, the, the mere mention of a storm headed toward uh, Florida is where this was, would spark sudden fear, even panic in the hearts and minds of a lot of different people who lived in proximity of this approaching storm. And, you know, folks would make runs to the store and, you know, the commissaries and the grocery stores, their their shelves would be empty uh, because they wanted to prepare so they could hunker down in place or even evacuate if needed. And more times than not, in the area at least that we were located in, we did all this fear and preparation and panic and you saw it going on. The storm ended up just being that, a storm, a big storm maybe, with lots of blowing wind and falling rain and streams and creeks that maybe rose and flooded, but eventually the storm passed. That's the good thing. And be sure, this storm will pass as well. Uh, It's very inconvenient for a lot of people. I know that some of you have travel plans wife and I had some travel plans that had to get uh, canceled. It's also inconvenient for many because maybe they've been touched directly by this virus. It's not just canceling of a trip, but maybe they've contracted the virus. Uh, Maybe some, this number has been small so far, have died from this virus. And many have been uh, affected adversely, financially, from the stock market, all these things. And we need to remember to pray for, for everything that's involved with this this thing that's going on, but especially for those who are directly affected by this virus. It's a good time to remind ourselves that in these uncertain times that our confidence, our trust is only found in who? In the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God himself. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 32 makes it very clear to us, and I'll just read this for you. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but it, it informs us that God reigns, that he rules over everything. And he really has predetermined that which is good for all of us within his kingdom. He says in verse 28 of Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For, for those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that's all past tense. In the mind of God, there is no time. It's completed. That should allow us to sleep at nights. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ and our sins have been forgiven and we have come to Christ for salvation in him alone, then all those things are true of our present state, our present relationship with God. And Paul asked the question in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us all things? See, if we allow it to fear and panic, we'll dominate. You see it all around you, I'm sure. Just go to the grocery store, like Ken said. Someone said they went to Costco and there's a line out the door and fighting over toilet paper and water and all kinds of crazy stuff. And don't be surprised. I mean, don't forget it is an election year. Some people are fanning the flames of this and we have to be careful Clearly, because this virus is real, it's not something that's a figment of our imagination. But at the same time, the health professionals, at least at this point, say that even if you contract this virus, unless you're in a questionable state of health yourself, you'll be okay. You'll survive this, even if you get the virus. So there's no need for fear and panic, but it's really an opportunity for us to use our faith, our faith in Christ, I'm reminded of many times in the Psalms, especially David, when he faced fear. He pointed us to his trust in God. He says in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Or what can a mere virus do to me? Think about it. The worst possible case scenario is you get the virus and you die. If you're one of his children, guess where you're going? You're going to be with him. So this is really an opportunity for us as the body of Christ to encourage, to strengthen the people of God as well as it really provides an opening for the gospel to be shared for those in our community who have not responded to it yet in isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 if you're anxious if yourself find yourself in a panic mode remind yourself of this the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because why he trusts in you um, that's why I want to speak this morning on this passage in Matthew chapter 8. Living our faith in the face of fear. Living our faith in the face of fear. The theme really of this passage, it teaches us seven principles that I've written out there for in your outline about trusting our sovereign Lord while we're in the midst of trials or tribulations or the storms of life. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as I read through this passage, I was reminded that when you look through 
the Bible, you see stories of God's great acts of mercy in the Bible. Over and over again, he, he, he reveals to us his acts of mercy. And oftentimes, it involves people who are in a boat for whatever reason. And not only that, they weren't only in the boat, but they were caught in a storm at sea. There's good reason for this. When you stop and you think about it, if you've ever been in a boat that is caught in a storm at sea, there's probably nothing more out of human control than a storm at sea. You can't do anything about it. The waves keep coming. The wind keeps blowing. The rain keeps falling. And there's nothing more helpless than a boat being tossed about in the middle of a storm out at sea. It's really a a picture, I believe, that God provides for us. It's an illustration of being completely subject to grave circumstances that are utterly outside of our control. You can't do anything about it. And so it's it's a perfect illustration of being suddenly caught at the mercy of trying or tribulation or difficulties or even maybe dangerous circumstances. Circumstances in which we are helpless, utterly helpless to do anything but cry out to God. I mean, we read that God brought a sudden windstorm down on the boat back in Jonah chapter 1, in which he was traveling. You remember the story. We don't have to turn there. We've all become familiar with the the story of Jonah and the tough and experienced sailors who were with him in the storm. They became terrified. You know, when you're on a boat... And the captain of the boat or the people in charge of the boat are terrified. you got a problem. I remember I went deep sea fishing. The only time I ever went deep sea fishing, when I was younger, I was probably a preteen, my brother and I went out with my nephew deep sea fishing down off the New Jersey coast. And I remember the captain, as we left the, the bay, he said, it's going to be a rough day today. And I thought, okay, I wonder what he means by that. Well, I knew within a half hour what he meant as I was clinging to the side of the boat, giving up everything that I've eaten for three days, it seemed. It was the most miserable experience I've ever had. I don't think I've ever gone deep sea fishing since then. It was just horrible. And it wasn't just me. 90% of the boat was sick. The only person that I know that didn't get sick was my older brother. We just had too much pride to give it up, I think. Because <laughs> he had his own boat and he thought he was, you know, captain of the ship, even though he wasn't. But I'll never remember, I'll never forget how wonderful it was when we were coming back in after just feeling just horrible. It was a miserable experience. I don't think anybody fished. We were out there for a couple hours and When we were coming back in and we got into the calm seas of the bay there, I remember the captain coming over the loudspeaker and saying, well, I know this was not a a blessed experience for anybody. And, you know, if if it helps you at all, this is probably one of the only times I've ever gotten 
seasick. But me as your captain got seasick. And I thought, wow, okay. I'm, I'm not in bad company. But when everybody who's in charge of the ship is in panic, as it was in the case of Jonah, you definitely have a problem. And eventually the word of, the, 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 the word of Jonah, um, they threw him overboard. You read in that account how God brought a sudden windstorm on the boat. They had all this stuff, and they became so terrified, these sailors. What did they do? They started crying out to their gods, their gods, not the true God, but they cried out to their gods. And finally, Jonah said, throw me overboard. So they threw him overboard, and when the storm suddenly ended, in Jonah 1.16, it says, they feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. In other words, God used that storm in their lives to bring those sailors, salty and, and, and experienced as they were, to the end of themselves and eventually to their knees before God by being caught up in that storm at sea. I'm sure they were caught up in other storms at sea. They were sailors. It was probably commonplace. But there was something about this storm that drove them to their knees. Or you can even read in Acts chapter 27 where you find that Roman soldiers and sailors who were transporting Paul to Rome, were also caught in a storm. We remind yourselves of that. You can read that on your own. And they wouldn't listen to Paul's warnings about not venturing out. But by the time the storm had had its way with them, even the Roman centurion in charge was taking orders from the apostle Paul. Paul prayed. And you know what? All 276 souls on board that ship were spared. God used that storm at sea and that ship to get everybody's attention. Well, this morning we come in our passage to one of the most famous storm stories in the Bible. All the elements are there. The sudden, the unexpected storm, the boat helplessly being tossed about, and the passengers who were terrified and who feared for their lives. But this time, This time, guess who was in the boat? This time, Jesus. The Son of God in human flesh, the incarnate Lord, was present in the boat. And you know what? His presence made all the difference in the world. This story teaches us that Jesus, the Lord, is the Lord of all storms, all trials, all tribulations. He shows us how we can trust him to see us through the storms of life, no matter what they may be when we encounter them. So let's look at this morning, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, how we can live our faith in the face of fear. Matthew writes in his passage, And when he got into the boat, his disciples, he being Jesus, his disciples followed him, and he beheld, and, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? 
that even winds and sea obey him. See, here we see the supernatural power, the divine power of Jesus Christ on display. This isn't the only place, by the way. We saw when we went through the study of Matthew, a leper fell before Jesus saying, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. Guess what? Jesus said, I am willing, be clean. Guess what? He was. He was healed instantly. That's the beginning of this chapter. Or how about the time the centurion asked Jesus to heal his paralyzed servant? Jesus was able to announce the servant healed from a distance. He didn't even visit there. Or there was the time when he came up to Peter's mother-in-law, who was gravely sick with fever. And he took her by the hand. And what did he do? He healed her. You look throughout the Gospels, you see multitudes of sick people, multitudes of demon-possessed people who Christ heals. Why? Because he has the power to do so. He has the power to do so. See, the highlights of this story really are things to just wonder about. I mean, here is a man in a boat in the middle of a storm, and he stands up, and he orders the wind and the waves to cease. And it, it happened. There was a great calm in its place. And there's, there's no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had them under his sovereign control at that time. That shouldn't surprise us. He has the authority over everything on this earth, the Bible tells us, including even the most unpredictable, uncontrollable things in our own lives, like viruses. (laughs) See, this same Jesus who exercised complete authority over that storm on the Sea of Galilee that day also has authority over all the storms in our life, no matter what they may be. That may strike us. Maybe they'll strike us today. Maybe they'll strike us tomorrow. He may, in his wisdom and in his love, allow us to experience them. But they're never, they're never outside his divine control. That's so important for us to understand. With nothing more than a word, he is able to bring that storm to an end and replace it with a great calm. So as long as he's with us, In the midst of the storms of life, we will never have that reason to fear. Well, as we look at this passage, I want to draw out just seven principles. Seven principles that will teach us about trusting our sovereign Lord during tribulations, during trials, during storms, during times in our society when people are panicking. Look at what it says in verse 23. We see the first principle. Even when we follow Jesus faithfully, this is important to understand, unexpected storms will come. Even when we're following Jesus faithfully, when we're doing everything right, that doesn't entitle us to a cakewalk. Matthew begins by telling us, and when he got into the boat, Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I mean, this is significant. I mean, the disciples at this point in time 
had a rough idea, but they didn't have a profound idea of who they were following. Their faith was small, but they were following. And they had actually, listen to this, they had left their houses. They had left their families. They left their careers, their occupations, to be expressly with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we're quick to criticize them in this situation. But they've already done done a lot more than we will probably ever do in following Christ. In chapter 4, we're told that Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. That was their profession. They were fishermen. Verse 20, in in verse 22, James and John left the boat and their father and followed him. In chapter 9, we see that Matthew, the tax gatherer, was a very... um, profitable business we'll say it that way it says that he left his tax collector's booth and followed him the disciples had much to learn about what being a disciple meant but they had heard jesus's call make no doubt they had to some extent trusted him and they obeyed his summons to get in the boat they followed him they passed through that small gate they were on that narrow path that path that leads to life with Jesus Christ. Which begs the question, (laughs) are you on that path? Have you left all lesser loyalties to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? See, it's not enough, beloved, to be merely impressed with Jesus. It's not enough to be impressed with who he is as a person or to be impressed with his teachings in the Scriptures. It's not enough to be impressed with his miraculous power. See, the vital thing is actually to follow him. That's what we're called to do. And that word follow really connects us with the passage just before that. In Matthew 8, verses 19 and 20. It talks about two men here. Luke talks about three men who were going to follow Christ. And remember, there was a lot of people following Jesus Christ. That word disciple simply means a follower or learner or pupil. The word itself has no spiritual connotation. You can be a disciple of Jesus Christ or you can be a disciple of Mickey Mouse. It doesn't have any spiritual meaning to it. It just means that you're a follower, you're a learner, you're a pupil of that individual. And we see here in in Matthew 8, in the previous text, verses 19 to 20, you see a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wow. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. You think Jesus would have said, Come on, let's go. What's he do? He says, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wow. Wow. That doesn't seem like a really good response to someone who's coming to follow you, Jesus. When I used to teach young people as a youth pastor, I I called this guy Mr. Too Hasty. (laughs) Mr. Too Hasty. See, there's people like that in the church today. They come to church and then, oh, I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus. They don't have the slightest idea what it means to follow Jesus. And when Jesus turned to him and said, hey, you know what? I don't have anywhere to lay my head. 
The indication is that person said, oh, you're not staying at the Hilton and, you know, the finest place? You think with all these people and all these supporters, you would be staying in a five-star hotel, Jesus? No, I don't even have a place to call my own. Well, Mr. Too Hasty made that commitment a little too quick. And the idea is that he didn't follow Jesus as a result of what Jesus said to him. But then, down further, you see the cost even further. It says, another disciple said to him. So he's a follower of Jesus. That's why I said this word disciple doesn't mean they're spiritual people. He says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And you might say, well, that's not an unreasonable request. If the guy died and his dad died, I'm sure he's got to go bury his father. Well, the indication is his father didn't die yet. The language kind of, in the the context, kind of points out to us that this guy's looking forward to his inheritance. (laughs) And so this is Mr. Too Hesitant. (laughs) He offered to follow, but he said, hey, you know what? My dad's going to be dead pretty soon, and I'll have lots of money, and then we can really help you out, Jesus, with all these funds. So let me go deal with that first, and then I will follow you. See, both men had to confront the difficult challenges that come with following Christ. Luke, in his account in chapter 9, gives us a third individual. He's not mentioned here, but he is in Luke chapter 9. I call him Mr. Too Homesick because he wanted to go and say goodbye to his relatives and then come back and follow Jesus. And you say, well, that's not an unreasonable request. But it is when Jesus says, follow me. Follow me now. See, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. (laughs) You don't wait. You don't toy around with eternity, beloved. You don't know if you'll walk out of here alive today or next week or in two weeks. We don't know when our time is up. See, a disciple is someone who follows Christ, leaves everything and follows him. It means you go where he says to go. You do what he says to do. And you believe what he says to believe. We don't have the privilege of doing our own thing. So many times people say, well, don't you think we have a free will? I don't. The Bible describes us as slaves to sin before we came to Christ, does it not? That doesn't seem real free. (laughs) And after we come to Christ, what are we called? We're called slaves to Christ. We're called to serve him, to follow him. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, the message of salvation, all those disciples were gathered on that mountain to hear Jesus talk. They saw some of his miracles, and they thought, you know, we're going to go check this guy out. Now, some of these disciples weren't true disciples. They were false disciples. Even those among the 12, there was one who was a false disciple. The men of Jesus' inner circle are often referred to as disciples, yet Judas himself was what? One who betrayed the Lord. He was an unbeliever. MacArthur points out four categories of disciples. The broadest group were the curious, those who followed Jesus for a while simply to find out what he was like. 
If you hang around church for any length of time, you see people like that all the time. They come to your church, roll up their sleeves, they want to get involved. They're not here for a long time commitment. You, you know that. They're just curious. They're fascinated. They're intrigued. People back then were intrigued with what Jesus said. They were intrigued with what Jesus did. But you know what? They would not surrender to him as Lord and Savior. They were a false disciple. In John 6, it says, Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Many, therefore, of his disciples His followers, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. They didn't understand what he was saying. Who can listen to it? And then it gives a result. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So you have people who are curious. Secondly, you have people who are intellectually convinced of who Jesus is, of his divine message, of his power. In John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know, I know this with my intellect. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But at that point, he was not yet committed to Christ The Lord went on to point out Nicodemus was not born again and consequently had no spiritual relationship to God. He had no participation in God's kingdom. He had no right to eternal life. So you can be curious, you can be convinced, but there's also a third category. He calls it secret believers. I call it clandestine believers. Joseph of Arimathea. He was a follower until he asked Pilate, and we know that because he asked Pilate for permission to bury Jesus in his own tomb and thereby proclaim his allegiance to the Savior. Up to that point, we didn't, he wasn't out proclaiming anything. He was kind of a secret follower. In the fourth category, MacArthur points out, are those who are genuine, those true and open believers they're, they're publicly and permanently committed to Christ Jesus. doesn't matter what people think. doesn't matter what comes down the pike, suffering, whatever. They're going to stick to that commitment to Christ. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple basically means that you follow Jesus wherever he goes. So here's their disciples, back to Matthew. They're following Jesus. And when he got into the boat... What, what, what does it say his disciples did? They followed him. They followed him. You think, wow, they would get rewarded for this. This is a good thing. Well, look at what verse 24 says. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped. That means it was being filled overwhelmingly by waves, by water. The end of the verse it says, but he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. Now, we're not talking a luxury cruise liner here. You know, we're not even talking a yacht. We're talking a simple little boat, a fishing vessel. I mean, this is a very remarkable storm that hit the sea. The Greek word 
that Matthew uses here to describe this is, is seismos. You know, you think of the earthquake, right? That's what it means, a shaking or a quaking. Luke tells us that this was a product of a great wind that suddenly came down upon the lake. This happens over there all the time. And these experienced fishermen ordinarily would have been able to tell in advance that this windstorm was coming. But this one, it says, was unexpected. You know, just like Jesus said, be calm. I think before he went to sleep, he said, okay, let's turn it up. (laughs) Because it was so sudden. It was unexpected. What we're told is it came suddenly. It's described as great. I mean, if they were such great fishermen and they knew it was coming, why would they go out on a fishing boat with Jesus? Why wouldn't they say, hey, uh, Lord, you know, look at these waves and stuff. It's not good. We shouldn't go out there. Any experienced sailor would know that. But this one was unexpected. It was so threatening that we're told that the boat was swamped or covered by waves. I remember one time I was going down the Loyal Sock Creek in our canoe with some friends. Summer, we always did this. And you'd usually come to this path, a break, and part of the stream went this way and part of the stream went that way. And usually you would go the more calm route. Well, my friends and I were kind of stupid. We thought, let's take that way. Look at that. That looks, that's going fast. What fun. Well, you know what happened. The canoe tipped over, lost our lunch. It lost everything. I remember that boat filling up, that canoe filling up with water and just, we just tipped over. And it wasn't like this, but it was scary. It was scary. This is what was in their hearts, fear. When the gospel of Mark He tells the same story. He says that the boat was already filling. Their boat was filled up. The men in the boat were certain that they were going to die. So much so that they cried out because they thought they were going to perish. That's another word for die. (laughs) And here, perhaps, is the most remarkable thing about this storm. It came... When they were in the course of simply, what, following Jesus. They were simply following Jesus. They didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't like the story of Jonah. They were doing the right thing. They were obeying the Son of God. And yet this violent, life-threatening storm fell upon them anyway. I mean, here is this spiritual lesson for us to discern. We should never think that just because we're following Jesus, we have a right to expect to be exempt from the storms of life. Those storms may and those storms will come, even though we are following Jesus faithfully. I mean, Jesus could have prevented this storm from coming. He could have done that. He had the power to do that. But he didn't see fit to do so. But his disciples were following him, and what did he do? He led them right into a storm. Question, why would Jesus do this? 
See, we need to keep in mind that Jesus has greater things in mind for those who are following him. Greater things than they have for themselves. See, we have it in our minds, especially in America as Christians, that we ought to have a comfortable ride when we follow Jesus. It should be a rose garden. Everything should be hokey-dokey. Everything should be fine. Happy, happy in Jesus. See, but Christ knows that as his followers in training learned here, we need to get caught in some storms now and then. Why? So we can learn some new truth about the Jesus that we claim to be following in an experiential way. And you know what? He knows just the right time for us to enter into a storm. And he knows just what we need to learn from that storm in order to trust him even more. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various uh, trials of different kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. So the first principle, learn to expect as you follow Jesus, the storms will come. They come for a very good purpose, but trust me, they will come. They will come so that we will learn something new about our great Savior's love and power toward us. Well, this brings us to the second principle, verse 24. Though it seems as if the Lord is asleep during the storm, he's still present. He's still present. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being filled by water, by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Matthew makes Jesus stand out in stark contrast to all the panic that's going on around him. Matthew writes, but he was asleep. In the original language, Matthew even puts it more emphatic. Literally, the original language says, but he, he was asleep. (laughs) You can see the disciples. Yeah, there was Jesus. Sleeping. We're thinking we're going to die. Paints a perfect picture for us, though, because I believe our God has a great sense of humor, don't you? I mean, how can Jesus sleep at a time like this? Well, for one reason, he was tired. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was bone weary. He was ministering to all these people constantly, finally gets in the boat, and he just crashes. He slept so soundly that not even the tossing of the boat, the noise of the wind or the blowing water hitting his face awakened him. He was out. I don't know if Jesus snored, but maybe he was snoring. He was soaked to the skin while lying on hard planks with only a cushion for his head, Mark tells us. And he was out. But there was another reason, a much more profound reason. It was because he wasn't in a panic. He wasn't in a panic. He wasn't in a panic over the circumstances like so many times we are. See, this was all part of his great divine plan. 
The storm was howling, the wind, the waves were blowing about, the water was filling the boat, tossing it to and fro like a little cork. And all the while, the creator of the world slept soundly in the midst of it all. Even though in his divinity he was omniscient, in his humanness, he was at this time oblivious to the turmoil that surrounded him. Or he wouldn't be sleeping. He was at perfect peace in the midst of this storm. Because he knew that the storm, listen, he knew the storm was under his control at all times. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. He was in his father's will, and he knew that no matter what else happened around him, his father's will would still be fulfilled in him. He had no reason to be afraid. Hence him being asleep in the midst of a storm in a small boat. As long as he was in the boat, Guess what? The disciples had no reason to be afraid either. I mean, the Son of God is in the boat with you. Now, when you and I are going through a storm, it may seem as if the Lord isn't aware of it. Like we have to inform God. Lord, you don't know what's going on in my life right now, so I'm just going to tell you. We call that a prayer time. It really is the gripe time. We're just griping, you know, why is this happening to me? Why is all... As if God doesn't already know. It may seem as if he's asleep, but we can be sure that he isn't. Because the scripture tells us that he never sleeps on us, even if it appears he's sleeping. <laughs> it's only meant to test our faith in him. Psalm 121, verse 3 and 4 says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. We sing a little chorus saying he he never sleeps. He never slumbers. It's so true. When you're in the midst of the storm, just remember, Jesus, if you're a follower of him, is there too, with you, in the midst of the storm. I mean, maybe his apparent silence seems to you that He's not there. But that's just meant to see if you will trust him and have confidence in him. Did you know that he offers you peace through the storms of life? Christ, throughout his word. John 14, 27. Listen, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And he says this, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid or fearful. He says in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have, what, peace. In the world you have tribulation, you have trials, you have all sorts of things, you have viruses, but be of good cheer. <laughs> I have overcome the world. See, we can be confident that Jesus who experienced Perfect peace in the presence of this storm is always with us in the storms that we encounter. He offers us that perfect peace. He offers his own perfect peace in our storm if we just accept it. So the storms will come, but Jesus is with us in them. Thirdly, 
We do the best thing we can do during a storm when we cry out to Jesus. Verse 25. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. I mean, the disciples certainly did the best thing they could. I mean, these are seasoned fishermen, seasoned sailors. They didn't know what to do in this situation. They did the only thing they could do. They cried out to Christ. They cried out to Jesus. They woke him from his sleep. Matthew tells us that they cried out to him, Lord, save us, we are perishing. In the original Greek language, this this very crucial prayer, it's only three words in length. It's only three words. Literally, it's translated this way. Lord, save, we perish. (laughs) That's what they're saying. They didn't have time for anything else in their minds. It gets right to the point. By the way, it's a fantastic prayer. It's a fantastic prayer. Analyze it with me. The word Lord, we see that they knew who to go to. And they also had the manner of reverence they should as they approached him. They didn't walk up to Jesus who's sleeping in the boat and kick him and say, hey, you, get up. We're perishing. They said, Lord. In that first word, they recognized and admitted his authority, his power to deal with the situation. Why? Because they, they saw his power and authority on display. To call him Lord in this case was to confess his deity. Really, they're saying, God, help us. The second word there, save, not only did they know who to go to, but they knew what they needed. See, there's a lot of people that come to God, but they don't know what they need. They cried out, save. Why? Because they needed to be rescued. They needed to be saved. They laid out their need before their Lord because they knew if he didn't, intercede, they would, the third word there, perish. They stated their situation correctly. They rightly understood how hopeless they were unless we did, unless they they did what he told them to do. They cried out to him. In their mind, if he didn't help them at this point, they were lost. They were going to die. I mean, this is really a great, if you want to call it a sinner's prayer, Lord, save, or I'm going to die for all eternity. Lord, save me, I perish. So you can't be saved unless you admit a need. You can't be saved unless you cry out to him as Lord and plead with him to save you. But this also happens to be a perfect prayer to pray in the midst of a storm. We're in the midst of the storms of life. The perfect thing to do is to cry out to Christ. So many times, he's the last one we cry out to. I know many people dealing with different things in their life, whether it be relations, finances, whatever. What do they do? They go to all the experts, on all the books, counseling books, all the stuff. And Christ is saying, just cry out to me. I, I am the one that can deal with your situation more than anyone else. The perfect thing to do do is to cry out to Jesus. We must, as it were, awaken him with our prayers. 
And it doesn't have to be some detailed prayer or flowerly prayer. Lord, save or I perish. See, Jesus isn't interested in our creative speaking abilities. What he wants from us is our hearts. And when he has our hearts expressed in our crying out to him in prayer in a time of trial, guess what? He responds. I think that's why one of the reasons why our government authorities ask for a day of prayer. Because I think they're at their wit's end. But it's not by mistake. Think about it. The most powerful man in the world states, you know what? We just have to pray. Doesn't even matter what his own personal faith is. Who cares? He's pointing in the right direction. He's saying, we don't got this. We need some divine intervention here. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. How do you respond in the day of trouble? Do you worry? Do you fret? Or are you quick to go to your knees and cry out to God? Fourth principle, before Jesus rebukes the storm, he may first wish to rebuke our lack of faith. We forget this, but it's so true. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Notice he just didn't wake up, oh, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, be calm. No, he didn't do that. He let the storm rage for a couple minutes as he lectured them on their lack of faith and their fear. It says, then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. See, Matthew tells us that Jesus awoke in response to their cry. Their cry for what? Their cry for help. But he tells us before he rebuked the winds and the waves, he rebuked his own disciples. What does that say about their condition? Well, Jesus says that they're fearful. Are you fearful? As you look around at what's going on around us, you probably weren't too fearful six months ago. When you logged on to your account and looked at your IRA, growing, growing, wow, this is great. Look at the economy. Everything's going great. Whoa, now everything's, the bottom's falling out. A little bit of fear there. A little bit of question mark. What's going on? What's interesting here is this Greek word. It's not the normal word for fear, which is phobos. That's not the word he uses here. This word means timid or cowardly. It suggests a kind of fearfulness that is unbecoming. A, a kind of fearfulness that is inappropriate, that is even at times sinful. The only other occasion that this word is used in the original language is in Revelation 21.8. And in Revelation 21.8 we're told, The cowardly shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Same word. It's the only other place it's found in the New Testament. And look at what Jesus says about the cause of their sinful condition. He says the reason you're in a sinful state is because you have little faith. He calls them, oh, you of little faith. See, their real problem was being shown up by the storm. And the real problem was their lack of faith in Christ. 
all that they had seen of him, all the miracles, all the incredible things that he had done, it hadn't sunk into the heart level with them yet. They saw it with their eyes. They maybe not understood it with their mind, but it was in their intellect. They could tell you what Jesus had done, the people had healed, the miracles that he had performed, but it didn't sink to their hearts yet. They didn't really understand who he was and how because of who he was and because of the fact that he was with them, that they had absolutely no reason to be afraid. I read this last week of a seminary student in a preaching class as he was preaching through this passage. He told the class that the man who is asleep in the boat with them was none other than the Son of God. And no matter what else might have happened because of the storm, that boat was definitely not going to go down. Period. In his message, he said this, if the disciples had just relaxed, they could have enjoyed the ride of their lives. Think about that. See, I believe that's a great way to describe each one of us in our own walk through life with Christ. Sometimes we just need to relax and enjoy the ride of our lives. Yeah, it may be up, it may be down. It may be blessed, it may be not at times. You might be faced with hardship or trial. I'm not, don't want to be misunderstood, I'm not being flippant about the trials that we have in life or we go through because they are real. And some of you are experiencing them right now. At times, they're they're horrible. They're terrible trials. But see, each trial, each storm is allowed by our Lord for the purpose of encouraging us to place our trust in something about himself that maybe we've already been taught. He's already shown us what he can do. And the storms force us to go back to that thing that we learned about him and trust him in a whole new way, in a different occurrence, a different circumstance. In this situation, the disciples were clear about what Jesus could do. And they were about to see more. And so in faith, they should have been bold. They should have been confident toward Christ They definitely should have turned to him as they did, but very calmly, very confidently. They should have awakened him and said, you know what? Hey, Lord, uh, we're about to perish here. Uh, Save us. We really look forward to how you're going to pull this off, Jesus. And you know what? We'll we'll even give you the glory in advance. Thanks for doing this for us, but this boat's getting a little rocky. How are you going to handle this one? And then sit back and watch. See, in the storms of life, if the Lord doesn't often wish to rebuke us for our terrible lack of faith in him, so oftentimes he wants to do that. And he does that before he rebukes the storm to teach us a lesson. I mean, I wonder if he doesn't ask us sometimes, don't you think I know there's a storm? I mean, I'm God. I created everything around you. I know everything there is from eternity past to eternity present. Why in the world 
Are you being so cowardly? That's really what he's asking them. We should learn to trust more in the promise of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, right? But in prayer, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, you're not even going to comprehend why you're at peace. It will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Well, the fifth principle we learn here quickly from this passage is about being with Jesus in the storm. Jesus is able to change a great storm into a great calm with just a word. Look at verse 26. He said, He arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The Bible tells us that. Now imagine that. He actually scolded the weather and the water. I mean, this would seem crazy to personalize wind and waves, to talk back to them like he did. But the results speak for themselves because it says that there was a great calm. Luke tells us that the winds and the raging of the water ceased. Think about it. You're in a boat at one point. Waves are filling the boat. Everything is tumultuous. You think you're going to die. Jesus gets up and said, okay, that's it. It's over. And you look out and the lake is as clear as glass. There's no more water in the boat. Everything's back to normal. There wasn't like it died down over a period of time. Do you understand this? It was gone at his word. In a moment, the raging sea with incredible waves, the wind, the rain, it all stopped. And it became like a sea of glass, perfect calm. Why? Because... In Matthew 28, 28, Jesus said this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I don't know why this surprises us. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He proved this when he was in the storm with his disciples. He was able to do the same for us in the midst of our storms, in our lives, and in our nations. Because the storms are always under his control. He is able, if he so commands, to turn it from a great tempest to a great calm. Sixthly, here quickly, Jesus proves through storms that he is sovereign over all areas of our life. Look at verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and seas obey him? I mean, can you imagine what it was like in that boat after the calm set in? After that calm fell upon them? I picture Jesus on one side of this small fishing vessel. And all the disciples sitting on the other side. So the boat's kind of leaning right this way. And Jesus is on the hall, the high side of the boat. Everything's perfect. Everything's just perfectly calm. And Jesus is just looking at his disciples. And they're just sitting there with their mouths open. Like, what has just gone on? What have we just experienced? What sort of man is this? They're asking. The affirmation behind their question is that he is no mere man. This is not a mere man. He is the sovereign God who is able to command even the wind and the sea, and they obey him. And the implication for us is that 
he is able to command far lesser things than the wind and the sea, and they too will obey him. If he can command winds and waves and seas, he can command everything else that comes into our lives. His call to us in the midst of these storms is that we trust him to have absolute power, absolute control over all that comes our way. And then to lean on him as our strong, our all-sufficient help. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30 says this. Psalm 107, 23 to 30. Those who go down to the ship, go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, he says in verse 31, for his wonderful works. To the children of men, let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. Last thing today is when Jesus rises, principle seven, to our rescue in the storm, the result should be that we worship him. It says they marvel, what sort of man is this? When we look at the Gospels, we find it's even more profound. In Mark, it says they feared exceedingly. In Luke, it says they were afraid. What's interesting is this isn't the same word that was used for cowardness earlier. This is the word phobos. And it can be understood to express deep and heartfelt reverence. It's kind of like a holy dread fell over them when they saw what he did. They realized who was in the boat with them. They realized who it was that had rode through the storms of life with them. See, outside the boat, at the command of Jesus, a great tempest had been replaced by a great calm. And as a result, inside the boat, cowardliness had been replaced by holy, reverent fear. When we trust Jesus to see us through the storms of life, whether it's a virus, whether it's financial, whether it's our relationships, our marriage, our kids, whatever it might be, he takes us through to the other side and shows us more of who he really is. And as a result, if we truly learn what he seeks to teach us through the storms of life, we come a, away from that more in love with him than ever before, more in all of him, and more surrendered to him. Our worship of God occurs when we see our great God for who he really is and respond to what he, we see in an appropriate, heartfelt way. See, it's in the storms of life, beloved, that we see who Jesus really is. When we go through the storms with Jesus, and if we're trained by 
it as we should be, we'll come out the other side worshiping him. Let me ask you a question in closing. Are you being thrown about in the midst of a storm right now? Are circumstances in your life beyond frightening, outside of your control? That's what fear is. It's a lack of control. Then take to heart the lessons that we've covered. Don't be surprised by the fact, even when you follow Jesus faithfully, you're going to find yourself in the midst of a storm. It's part of his plan for growth, for development in your life. Be confident, secondly, that even if it seems like he's asleep, Jesus is still there in the storm with you. And he knows what's going on, and he's able to do whatever is needed. Thirdly, remember to cry out to him. It's the greatest thing you can do in the midst of a storm. Don't be silent. Don't stuff it away. Pray. Tell him what concerns you. Fourthly, be of good courage and strong faith in the midst of a, of a storm. Don't be timid or cowardly because of a lack of faith in him. He loves you. He's never going to abandon you. But don't give him a reason to rebuke your sinful attitude before he rebukes the storm. Fifth, rest assured in the knowledge that he can transform the storm from a great tempest into a great calm with one word. Sixthly, watch and learn from him. He'll teach you in the midst of the storm that he is sovereign over every area of your life. And even in the wind and the even the wind and the sea must obey the commands of the one who is your greatest friend. And most important when it's all over, when he proves himself once again, worship him. Worship him with everything you have. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Father, we thank you for your calm, your peace in the midst of life's storms. Lord, this virus is nothing to you. You could rid it off the face of the earth with one word. But Lord, you've allowed it in your, your sovereignty and your, 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 your plan and your purpose. And I can't help but to think that maybe it's to bring people to their knees. Those who are intellectual, those who are powerful, those who think they're in control of everything when really they're not in control of anything. You are. And until we're willing in our own hearts to acknowledge your sovereign control, your lordship over all that we have, over all that we do, over all that we experience in this life, we don't truly know you. You have to acknowledge that Christ is Lord and Savior. You can't pick one without the other. I pray today if there's people here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ for their salvation, I pray that they would take heart from even the prayer we looked at. Lord, save us, lest I perish. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Don't trust in maybe some false commitment you made years ago when you were younger. Maybe you raised a hand at a camp or walked forward in a service, but you haven't seen Jesus do anything in your life since. Guess what? He's not in your life. Very clear. 
Because the Bible says, if you love Christ, you will follow and you'll do what he commands you to do. I pray that you would come to Christ. I pray that you would acknowledge your need of a Savior. Forget your past religiosity and forsake all to follow him here today. The Bible says if we come to him with a humble heart, he won't cast us out. He's not going to reject us if we acknowledge our need to be saved. And for us believers, I pray that we would just be light and salt in the darkness and the world around us, that we would be a sense of calm in this storm of panic. Lord, because we're trusting in you and you alone. And Lord, we do pray for those who are in need. We pray for those even in our own congregation who may have needs. Maybe they don't want to go out and shop or or go out in public, Lord, I pray that they would let us know that we could help them, we could assist them, that we'd be an influence of good in this, this dark time that our nation is going through. And Father, our ultimate trust is in you and you alone. We praise you, we thank you, we pray you bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.